Second Samuel chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass after this, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite, and his men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. Amen. We'll end our reading with verse 4. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We've noted on numerous occasions in our study of Elijah how Elijah was moved by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him, basically directed him uh, in every place that he went, whether it be before King Ahab, or whether it meant uh, going into obscurity, into the wilderness for a prolonged period of time. It was always in each case, except one very negative example that we'll get to in due course, in which he failed to inquire of the Lord. But I bring that up just now because we see in these verses we've just now read the exact same pattern in David's life. Notice what it says again in verse 1. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. The battle was over. The battle of Mount Gilboa. That had ended. Saul and his sons were killed. The funeral was over. And for David, some other things were over also. No longer would he have to find refuge in the land of the Philistines. Saul would never pursue him again like a hunter going after an animal. He wouldn't have to hide in caves anymore. He presumably would be able to return to the land of his inheritance as would others in his family that had also been sheltered and hiding away from the reach of Saul. David was undoubtedly aware that he had been anointed to be the next ruler in Israel. So the question that might naturally arise would be, what then should he do? And what he did was, in fact, the best thing for him to do, we read again the words of our text in verse 1, And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Arthur Pink makes an interesting observation about David in this context. Listen to what he writes. At the time, David was still a fugitive in the midst of the ruins of Ziklag. But instead of rushing ahead, 
making the most of his opportunity and seizing the empty throne, he sought directions from the Lord. Ah, we not only need to turn unto God in times of deep distress, but equally so when his outward providences appear to be working decidedly in our favor. I think that's a rather insightful remark by Mr. Pink. And how true it is that oftentimes it it, it takes conditions of distress to drive us to the Lord. The mark of a spiritual man is not only that he will seek the Lord in those conditions, that's well that he should, but that he seeks the Lord in every condition of life. Even when things seem to be moving in his favor, which now at long last they were for David. As I said, no longer having to flee from Saul, Saul had been killed in battle. When we read then in verse 1 that David inquired of the Lord, and that the Lord said unto him, Go up, we are at once face to face again with a very basic truth that sometimes sadly is neglected by the people of God, and that basic truth is this, that the Lord does communicate with those that seek him and walk with him, who believe in him to the saving of their souls. My sheep hear my voice, Christ says in John ten twenty seven, and I know them, and they follow me. This is very much a part, then, of what is sometimes referred to as experiential religion. We don't simply strive to live by some moral code, and then so long as we're living by that code, seek to do our own thing. False religions may function that way. Apostate religion may function that way. Even formal orthodox religion that is so lacking in vitality that it comes to be labeled as dead orthodoxy, it may function in that way too, of failing to commune with God. This is not, however, the way God intended it when he sent his son to die for our sins. The benefit of salvation is that those who were at one time alienated from God are alienated no more. Those that were spiritually dead are now spiritually alive. And in that spiritual life, we commune with God. It might be worth noting with regard to David that his practice of seeking the Lord for guidance had been his habit of life but had also become a neglected habit in the not-too-distant past from that time in which we're reading now. I don't think it could be said of David that he kept close communion with God during the days when he abode in the the Philistine city of Ziklag. But following the disaster of Ziklag, When David and his men were away from the city, and the city was raided and burned to the ground, and the women and children had been kidnapped, and David's men were so angry with him that they were ready to execute him, 
at that very time, we're told of David that he encouraged himself in the Lord. And I think that marked the turning point in David's life when he began anew the practice of seeking or inquiring of the Lord. This is a practice that ought to characterize every Christian. And yet, after the pattern of David's life, we'd also have to admit that it's a practice that is very easy to neglect. What I want to do this afternoon for a moment or two is analyze David's practice under three headings. The habit of seeking the Lord, the danger of failing to seek the Lord, and the manner in which the Lord answers our inquiries. So again, the words of our text, David inquired of the Lord. Let's think first of all on the habit of seeking the Lord. From his earliest days as a shepherd boy, David had learned to commune with his God. It's not hard to envision him keeping watch over his sheep while contemplating the truth that the Lord was his shepherd who led him to green pastures beside the still waters. And through this communion with his God, David had gained great spiritual strength and confidence to do exploits in the power of God, some of which were not widely known to men. Oh, we have the account, and we know it well, and it was a very public and visible thing when David took on Goliath in full view of the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines. But the confidence that he had to enter that battle arose from the confidence that he gained to do lesser known but equally amazing exploits. So we read back in 1 Samuel chapter chapter 17 and verse 34, And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. You see where David's confidence arose from? Going to take on Goliath was, in a sense, nothing new for somebody who had been in such close communion with his God. These are not the kinds of things, you know, that a young boy does who hasn't kept close communion with God. David illustrates the statement that Daniel would later make in his prophecy when he would predict a future day in which the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That's Daniel 11 and verse 32. A good text, by the way, to highlight, underscore, and commit to memory and, uh, and strive to live by. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Oh, that we may attain such strength and do such things. How is it that people come to know their God? 
and thus gain confidence and strength like David for doing those great exploits? Well, obviously they seek him. Obviously they inquire of him. Obviously they keep close communion with him. And so with David, we find numerous occasions in the historical narrative of him inquiring of God. Similar fashion, like I said in my introduction to the prophet Elijah. Spurgeon has a sermon on this text. And in that sermon, he elaborates several reasons why it is the duty of the Christian to seek guidance at the hand of God. Most notably, we seek God because he is our Father. Our Father, which art in heaven. And because ye are sons, Paul writes, Galatians 4, verse 6, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here is the mark then of a genuine Christian. He has the Spirit of God in his heart, and here is the evidence that the Spirit of God is in your heart. You call on God as your Father. This is something the Christian does quite naturally and desirously and freely. Romans 8.15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But not only is God our Father, but as I stated in my introduction and as I pointed out with regard to David, the Lord is our shepherd, as well as David's. It is in the context of the shepherd to sheep that Christ says in John's gospel, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, John ten twenty seven. You see how the idea of communion then is implicit in that verse. As sheep, we hear his voice, and because he's our shepherd, he hears our voice. As his sheep, we need to keep close communion with him. Apart from that communion, the truth of Isaiah applies, and don't we know it in our experience? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Oh, thank God this afternoon that even as stray sheep, we cry to God, and he hears us, and he seeks us, and finds us and restores us to the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But not only is God our Father and the Lord our Shepherd, but as the people of God, you could say we are married to our Savior. We are his bride. Indeed, the whole purpose of marriage is to illustrate the closeness of Christ to his people. Can you imagine a marriage where there is no communication between spouses? One of the things that contributes greatly to the breakdown of marriages is the failure of husbands and wives to communicate with each other. 
Now, if communion is an, an essential part of marriage, it is also an essential part of our relationship to God through Christ. We are his bride. He is our prophet, priest, and king, as we contemplated this morning. And in each of his mediatorial offices, there's a place for communion with him. Spurgeon makes the point that in one instance, Christ is called our counselor. You know the familiar verse in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I remember having that verse assigned as a memory verse in one of my Bible classes in college. And the professor making the remark, can't you just hear Handel's Messiah playing in the background as you recite that verse. It is one of the verses utilized in the Messiah. But the point here is that among these names is Counselor, Wonderful Counselor. Can you imagine a counselor who was never consulted? Such a title becomes meaningless for Christ unless his followers avail themselves of all that that title means. And what it means is that he will counsel us. He will advise us. He will lead and guide us. He will make his will known to us. So we must make it our habit to keep close communion with him. Don't be content to be prayerless. Don't be content to be constantly making excuses as to why you don't pray. You need to avail yourself of every opportunity to pray, which means you should pray privately, and we should pray as families, and we should come to prayer meeting and pray there also. David inquired of the Lord, our text says, Make sure that such a thing can be said of you also. There's a good reason to make this a habit in your lives. For I'd have you consider with me next, secondly, the danger of failing to seek the Lord. The danger of failing to seek Him. I pointed out in my introduction that even though seeking or inquiring of the Lord was characteristically the practice of David, you could not say that it was always his practice. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, one of the saddest episodes in the narratives of David, we find David in the setting of being delivered from Saul once again. And not only was he delivered from Saul, but Saul had also been delivered to him. For the second time, David could have avenged himself of his adversary and was actually advised to do so by those around him. But for the second time, he refused to do so. But he did make it known to Saul that he could have taken his life had he so chosen and it's in the context of that second deliverance, okay? After this has happened now, for the second time, where David has escaped Saul's hand and could have taken Saul's life, 
We read of David in 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines, and Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. Do you notice in that verse what is conspicuous by its absence and what is stated there instead? David is not now inquiring of the Lord. He's inquiring with his own heart instead. Okay, David said in his heart, I shall not perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's doing the very thing that Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 tell us not to do. Those verses say that we're to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. But in 1 Samuel 27, David is leaning on his own understanding. The text doesn't say, does it, that he inquired of the Lord. It says that he said in his own heart, and it is precisely here that the Christian makes himself so vulnerable to danger. He reasons in his own heart that he would one day perish by the hand of Saul. He thinks the matter is so apparent, so obvious, so plain and clear, that there's no need in this instance to inquire of the Lord. This is a matter of common sense, he must have said to himself. And in the days that followed, and if I'm not mistaken, those days lasted some 18 months, year and a half, where David is in the land of the Philistines, in the city of Ziklag, we find him having to live a life of deceit. He must pretend that he's something he's not. He must pretend to be loyal to the Philistines. He must take advantage of their kindness through the willingness of one of their kings to provide a city for him, and he must make it a habit of his life to deceive this king into thinking that he's launching raids against the south of Judah when, in fact, he's invading the Geshurites and the Amalekites. And in the end, he must at least initially align himself with the armies of the Philistines and give the appearance that he'll fight for them against Saul and Jonathan. Well, you talk about living a life of deceit, living a life of something that you're not, living the life of a hypocrite. Boy, there was David. Not once do we read of David during that time in exile that he inquired of the Lord. This was all the result of his inquiring of his own heart. And the situation went from bad to worse with him when the city of Ziklag was raided while David was away and his wives were taken and the wives and children of his followers were taken and the city was burned to the ground and David was face to face with a mutiny arising from his men who were quite bent on executing him at that time. 
And only then, when things couldn't possibly be any worse, do we read in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6, and these are great words to highlight also and keep in mind, especially in the context in which you find them. Keep in mind now, this is David's men so angry with him, feeling so let down by him that they're ready to stone him. So we read in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I know I preached a sermon from that text, and I made it a point of emphasis in that sermon that you can never be so far out of bounds with the Lord that you are beyond all hope of being able to encourage yourself in the Lord. Oh, David shows you how far out of bounds you can go, and yet he could still encourage himself in the Lord his God. And then two verses later in that same chapter, we read, And David inquired at the Lord. Now he's back into the old ways. Now he's back into the practice that he had been familiar with since a boy. David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. David was on track again. When I look at the words of our text in 2 Samuel 2 and verse 1, and read that David inquired of the Lord, it leads me to believe that David had learned his lesson and learned it well that you don't lean on your own understanding, you trust in the Lord instead. Couldn't you say that the setting of our text makes the next move of David fairly obvious? David had been anointed to be the next ruler in Israel. He knew he was to be the next king. Jonathan had affirmed it, even Saul had conceded it, and now Saul was removed from the scene of time, the throne was empty, the need was great. Isn't it obvious what David is supposed to do? And yet we read of him instead that he inquired of the Lord. And this is what leads me to think that he learned his lesson well, and the lesson that should come plainly, and I hope powerfully, to the heart of each follower of Christ here this afternoon, is that you become most vulnerable to danger when you conclude that the will of God is so obvious that you don't need to inquire of the Lord. There are other events in the history of the Old Testament that make that same point again and again. After Joshua and the Israelites had conquered Jericho, it seemed obvious that the next city to conquer would be Ai. And it was so obvious to the Israelites that they could take this city that they only called for a portion of the army to be utilized. And you recall the account, they were defeated. They were defeated for following a course of what seemed obvious and yet there was a very serious matter that needed to be dealt with first. There was sin in the camp. 
And had they inquired of the Lord, they would have done what they did following their defeat. They would have sought out sin and dealt with it. But because the way seemed obvious to them, they did not inquire of the Lord on that occasion. Same thing would happen to them a little while later when the Gibeonites approached them. You recall that event. It's recorded for us in Joshua chapter 9 when the Gibeonites disguised themselves in order to fool the Israelites into thinking they had come from a faraway place, a great distance from the Israelites, and that they had come to establish a peace treaty with them. In that instance, we're told specifically in Joshua 9 and verse 14, and the men took of their biddles and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Here again, the matter seemed so obvious to them. They didn't need the Lord's counsel. They were sure they could make the right decision on this one, and as a result, they were duped. Oh, what danger we invite to ourselves when we think the matter is so obvious that we don't need the Lord's guidance. In our pride, we like to think that we are better than dumb sheep, but really we're not. And so we need to make it a habit of life to inquire of the Lord often. Give us this day our daily bread is a sure indication that we must seek the Lord a lot. You invite your own downfall and destruction in your failure to inquire of the Lord, even in matters that in your estimation may appear to be obvious. It remains for us to consider one more point of analysis in this matter of inquiring of the Lord. Would you think with me for a moment, finally, on the manner in which the Lord answers our inquiries? It would really be a vain thing, wouldn't it, to read that David inquired of the Lord without being able to go on to read, and the Lord said unto him, Go up. The thing to note here is that the Lord does answer our inquiries, the Lord does hear our prayers, and the Lord truly does lead and guide his people. The question that naturally arises then would be, how? How does the Lord answer us today? Did the answer to David in our text come in the form of an audible voice? Was it an internal impression made on David's heart? You perhaps had the experience or have heard others refer to the experience of having God reveal a matter to them with such clarity that an audible voice couldn't have made it any plainer. The implication in such a statement is not that it was an audible voice, but that it was as plain as an audible voice. Well, how does God guide his people then and answer their inquiries? Well, first and foremost, he guides them through his word and by his word. And that word comes to us through Christ. 
The opening words to the epistle to the Hebrews says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. This sets a difference, doesn't it, between the way God had spoken in the past and the way God speaks today. There were various ways in, in different times in which God spoke in the past, but the uniform way in which he speaks in these days is by his Son. I think it is in this connection that the designation given by, uh, to Christ by John in his gospel becomes very important. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word referring to Christ. He is God's Word to us, which means that He is the primary subject that God speaks to us about, and He lays the foundation for God speaking to us at all. He guides us in the path that brings glory to his Son. So God speaks to us through the Word of God, and he speaks to us by the Spirit of God, and oftentimes it is those two things working together, God by his Spirit through the Word, in which he leads and guides and directs his people. At this last week of prayer we had a couple of weeks ago in Toronto, I had the privilege of speaking at the Wednesday night prayer meeting. I preached from Psalm 37 and focused on the phrase that occurs at the very beginning of that psalm and then occurs twice more a few verses later. It is the phrase that calls on us not to fret. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, and so on. I won't go into all of that just now, but let me have you turn to that psalm nevertheless, that I might point out a couple of things from it that can really be useful in this matter of how God communicates to his people these days. Psalm 37, let me read beginning in verse 3, verses 3 to 7. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in the way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. So you have that fret not there. You also have it in the beginning, right out of the gate, fret not thyself because of evildoers, verse 1. In between those two commands to fret not, you have all of these positive commands with promises attached to them. And these can be very valuable for guidelines when it comes to discerning God's guidance. Note the following from these verses. Trusting, delighting, 
committing, resting, waiting patiently. When all of these actions are embarked upon by the Christian, then it doesn't become a difficult thing to discern the will of God. You've heard it said probably along the way, this is a common uh, mantra in our society, and some of the poorest advice that could be given and that could be heeded when you hear it said, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked and cannot be known. Follow that. And um, like I say, some of the worst advice you could receive, don't buy it when you hear it, and you will hear it. It's everywhere. Just follow your heart. Just trust your heart. Having said that, however, having said that this is some of the worst advice that can be given to you, it is advice that can be followed if a certain criteria is meant. That criteria being trusting, delighting, committing, resting, waiting patiently. Oh, if you've committed your way to the Lord, if you're trusting in Him, if you're delighting in Him, then He will bring things to your heart by way of guidance and direction. And you can, in those circumstances, trust the Lord's leading. He'll never lead you contrary to His Word. It's also very important that you utilize the counsel of others when it comes to discerning His will. You've heard the statement, this is especially applicable to uh, young adults that are of marriageable age, okay? Um, how do you know? How can you tell uh, which one is the right one for you? Should I assume that a strong emotional attachment to somebody means that this must be my spouse because the emotion is so strong toward this person? Well, this is a situation when trusting others around you that uh, love you and that have your best interests in mind who are not blinded by the emotions that you are, that you lean on them for advice and counsel before the Lord. But when these admonitions are heard and heeded, trusting, delighting, committing, resting, waiting patiently, I believe that the truth of Psalm 25 does come into play where we read, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. I remember some while back listening to a sermon by R.C. Sproul on this very topic of knowing God's will for your life knowing his direction. And basically, he took the similar approach that I'm taking now, that if you are trusting, delighting, committing, resting, waiting patiently, then the question that naturally arises is, what are you inclined to do in this circumstance? And R.C. Sproul goes on to note that we have an incredible liberty 
in doing the Lord's will in that regard. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. There's a sense in which if you're measuring up to these exhortations, uh, there are no wrong answers for following the Lord, trusting, delighting, committing, resting, waiting patiently, and fretting not. Okay? So the Lord does communicate with his people through his word, by his spirit, in dealings that he takes with our hearts, and it becomes very important for us to measure up to these divine imperatives that are given to us in Psalm 37. Oh, may the Lord help us then as we seek guidance from him in any and every circumstance of life. May we indeed know his leading and guidance. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bring this meeting to a close now, we thank Thee that our Savior is a personal Savior. We thank Thee, Lord, that we don't simply follow a code and profess a creed, but that we do indeed enter into fellowship with the true and living God. We know, O Lord, that this isn't always easy. We do know even from thy word that we see through a glass darkly. But, O Lord, we thank thee that we do nevertheless see. So, dear God, we do pray that thou wilt help us to trust in thee and delight in thee and commit our way to thee and rest in thee. Knowing then, O Lord, that thou wilt lead and guide and direct us in the way which we should go. So hear our prayers and take our thanks now and dismiss us with thy blessing and keep us in thy fear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.